Cheers. Thanks for joining me. For the YouTube listeners, or the, excuse me, the iTunes listeners, that was uh, a drink being taken from a white Russian with coffee. Very delicious. Saturday morning kind of a drink. Yes, I'm drinking on a Saturday morning. So on Pulp Today, I talk about, a lot of times I talk about books that are quite famous, that got turned into movies, that everybody knows and loves, and I'm just giving my two cents on them, what I love about them, what means something to me about them. Uh, other times, I like to talk about things that I think more people should be aware of that aren't famous. And today's book is one that may have had some small influence on world history. Um, I actually discovered it in a science book, a science history book being discussed, and I thought, well, that's fascinating. I should, I should read that thing. And the book in question is H.G. Wells' The World Set Free. Now, you know H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells of War of the Worlds fame, of The Invisible Man fame, of The Time Machine. Name a science fiction trope. He may have been the first guy to write about it. But The World Set Free, he also had a fascination with history. And this is a cliche about science fiction writers, but I think Wells, more than a lot of them, and maybe he set this template, was really obsessed with trying to predict future history and try to imagine outcomes of things that he could see coming. Uh, one of them would be a revolution in science and physics that would change the world. Not to, not to, not to blow the, the spoiler, not to, not to do the spoiler alert, but World Set Free is written in 1914, and uh, rather than rather than clue you in into what's coming, I'm just going to jump right in. It talks about the future of mankind, and it's, it's writing in 1914, and it's not the most, you don't have to be the most brilliant historical thinker to see a giant war coming between the European powers. In his, the allies and their enemies fall along pretty much the lines they fell in the real world with uh, Germany on one side and England and France on another side. And this scene takes place at the outbreak of the war, at war control in Paris. And he takes a few pages describing it, describing the very handsome and serious uh, Marshal Dubois, who's the leader of the French and British forces, and it's written, it's an interesting thing that he does, it's all written from the perspective of a young woman who's a secretary at war control, looking around the room, seeing how impressive everybody is, seeing how, feeling how safe she feels, and how assured we are of victory with such magnificent men leading us. Then comes the turn. She's daydreaming about these, about victory and triumph and how wonderful General Marshal Dubois is. She gave herself up to fantastic dreams, dreams of the days when the war would be over and victory enthroned. Then perhaps this harshness, this armor, would be put aside and the gods might unbend. Her eyelids drooped. She roused herself with a start. She became aware that the night outside was no longer still, that there was an excitement down below on the bridge and a running in the street and a flickering of searchlights among the clouds from some high place away beyond the Trocadero. 
and then the excitement came surging up past her and invaded the hall within. One of the sentinels from the terrace stood at the upper end of the room gesticulating and shouting something. And all the world had changed, a kind of throbbing she couldn't understand. It was as if all the water pipes and concealed machinery and cables of the ways beneath were beating as pulses beat. And about her blew something like a wind, a wind that was dismay. Her eyes went to the face of the marshal as a frightened child might look towards its mother. He was still serene. He was frowning slightly, she thought. That was natural enough, for the Earl of Delhi, with one hand gauntly gesticulating, had taken him by the arm and was all too manifestly disposed to drag him towards the great door that opened on the terrace. And Viard was hurrying toward the huge windows and doing so in the strangest of attitudes, bent forward and with eyes upturned. Something up there? And then it was as if thunder broke overhead. The sound struck her like a blow. She crouched together against the masonry and looked up. She saw three black shapes swooping down through the torn clouds, and from a point a little below two of them, there had already started curling trails of red. Everything else in her being was paralyzed. She hung through moments that seemed infinities, watching these red missiles whirl down towards her. She felt torn out of the world. There was nothing else in the world but a crimson-purple glare and sound, deafening, all-embracing, continuing sound. Every other light had gone out about her, and against this glare hung slanting walls, pirouetting pillars, projecting fragments of cornices, and a disorderly flight of huge angular sheets of glass. She had an impression of a great ball of crimson-purple fire like a maddened living thing that seemed to be whirling about very rapidly amongst a chaos of falling masonry, that seemed to be attacking the earth furiously, that seemed to be burrowing into it like a blazing rabbit. She had all the sensations of waking up out of a dream. She found she was lying face downward on a bank of mold and that a little rivulet of hot water was running over one foot. She tried to raise herself and found her leg was very painful. She was not clear whether it was night or day, nor where she was. She made a second effort, wincing and groaning, and turned over and got into a sitting position and looked about her. Everything seemed very silent. She was, in fact, in the midst of a vast uproar, but she did not realize this because her hearing had been destroyed. At first she could not join on what she saw to any previous experience. She seemed to be in a strange world, a soundless, ruinous world, a world of heaped, broken things. And it was lit, and somehow this was more familiar to her mind than any other fact about her, by a flickering purplish-crimson light. Then close to her, rising above a confusion of debris, she recognized the Trocadero. It was changed, something had gone from it, but its outline was unmistakable. It stood out against a streaming, whirling uprush of red-lit steam. And with that she recalled Paris and the Seine, and the warm overcast evening, and the beautiful luminous organization of the war control. She drew herself a little way up the slope of earth on which she lay and examined her surroundings with increasing understanding. The earth on which she was lying projected like a cape into the river. Quite close to her was a brimming lake of dammed up water from which these warm rivulets and torrents were trickling. Wisps of vapor came into encircling existence a foot or so from its mirror surface. Near at hand and reflected exactly on the water was the upper part of a familiar-looking stone pillar. On the side of her, away from the water, the heaped ruins rose steeply in a confused slope to a glaring crest. 
Above and reflecting this glare towered pillowed masses of steam rolling swiftly upward to the zenith. It was from this crest that the livid glow that lit the world about her proceeded, and slowly her mind connected this mound with the vanished buildings of war control. May, she whispered, and remained with staring eyes quite motionless for a time, crouching close to the warm earth. Then presently this dim, broken human thing began to look about it again. She began to feel the need of fellowship. She wanted to question, wanted to speak, wanted to relate her experience, and her foot hurt her atrociously. There ought to be an ambulance. A little gust of querulous criticism blew across her mind. This surely was a disaster. Always after a disaster, there should be ambulances and helpers moving about. She craned her head. There was something there. But everything was so still. Monsieur, she cried. Her ears, she noted, felt queer, and she began to suspect that all was not well with them. It was terribly lonely in this chaotic strangeness, and perhaps this man, if it was still a man, for it was difficult to see, might for all his stillness be merely insensible. He might have been stunned. The leaping glare beyond sent a ray into his corner, and for a moment every little detail was distinct. It was Marshal Dubois. He was lying against a huge slab of the war map. To it there stuck, and from it there dangled little wooden objects, the symbols of infantry and cavalry and guns as they were disposed upon the frontier. He did not seem to be aware of this at his back. He had an effect of inattention, not indifferent inattention, but as if he were thinking. She could not see the eyes beneath his shaggy brows, but it was evident he frowned. He frowned slightly. He had an air of not wanting to be disturbed. His face still bore that expression of assured confidence, that conviction that if things were left to him, France might obey in security. She did not cry out to him again, but she crept a little nearer, a strange surmise which made her eyes dilate. With a painful wrench, she pulled herself up so that she could see completely over the intervening lumps of smashed-up masonry. Her hand touched something wet, and after one convulsive moment, she became rigid. It was not a whole man there. It was a piece of a man, the head and shoulders of a man, that trailed down into a ragged darkness and a pool of shining black. And even as she stared, the mound above her swayed and crumbled, and a rush of hot air came pouring over her. Then it seemed to her that she was dragged downward. That is H.G. Wells describing something that wouldn't happen in the real world until 1945. Later, he actually uses the term atomic bomb in 1914, roughly 30 years before the invention of the atomic bomb. Apparently, physicists did take notice of this book. I was reading a book called Heisenberg's War about Werner Heisenberg and whether or not he willingly or unwillingly built a bomb for the Nazis and all of the complexity of that moral issue to one side. On page 51, uh, the author, Thomas Powers, is talking about the period of the development of nuclear power, atomic power, excuse me. Rutherford had plenty of reason for his skepticism. Others, knowing less, were quicker to see the drift of events. Not long before World War I, the British writer H.G. Wells, his imagination aroused by Frederick Soddy's book, The Interpretation of Radium, took a bundle of scientific works to Switzerland where he dashed out a novel, The World Set Free, 1914. 
In this prescient book, Wells foretold the mastery of atomic energy. His science was a weird, plausible garble, followed by runaway economic prosperity, the production of atomic bombs, and a vast European war commencing in 1958, which reduced cities to wastelands of bubbling radioactivity. Thus, the bomb was given a name 30 years before the first research dollar was spent to build one. Wells's book was dismissed by the Times Literary Supplement as a porridge, but it gave shape to the darker forebodings of scientists during this generation it took them to approach, in fact, what Wells had imagined in a moment. Heisenberg and Leo Szilard both read The World Set Free and worried in their different ways that Wells had got it about right. There's another moment, I believe, where, I can't remember, I couldn't find the page, but uh, later one of those same physicists was listening to a, uh, there was a public press conference about the development of atomic energy and uh, someone in the audience, a reporter, said, you know, I read Mr. Wells' uh, The World Set Free and what's this, what's this talk of atomic bombs? And apparently every physicist in the world went, Welp, that's out now. <laughs> now that people know that there could be such a thing, someone will ask us to build one. The book ends, well, I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, <laughs> let's just say the war is devastating, and like a lot of science fiction works, it, uh, it has a utopian outcome as the world realizes it can no longer risk war. But The World Set Free by H.G. Wells, it is... Uh, one of his least known works. Yeah, I found a hardcover copy probably on eBay. Uh, it is very rarely in print, but I think you can find a paperback of it now and again. It's a, it's a fascinating work. It's not as well written as his other books, as some of his other books, but that scene alone, someone in 1914 describing being on the edge of an atomic blast and the suddenness of it and the world just being completely different a second later in a way that isn't quite congruent with what a conventional bomb blast would be like. It's quite a thing. And, you know, in, in terms of predicting the future, you know, Wells, in keeping with the time, has atomic bombs being delivered by being tossed out of the windows of airplanes. You know, there's no automatic machinery. It's literally a guy pulling a pin out and tossing with his teeth, no kidding, and tossing out a window. Uh, that's the very next scene. A, a, a British bomber pilot flies over to Berlin and on his own authority drops three atomic bombs on it, uh, the third of which engulfs his own plane, uh, which is more wells about the futility of, of war. But all that said, uh, give it a give it a give it a read sometime. It's a, it's a really really fascinating book, and it's impossible to say that Wells is responsible in any way for the development of the atomic bomb. But you know, you put these things out into the world, and you collate ideas, and eventually someone says, hey, maybe, well, what, what, would a, what would an atomic bomb be like? I mean, scientists have been trying to perfect death rays since the 1920s. Luckily, they haven't gotten it quite right yet. Just food for thought here from Pulp Today. Catch you on the next exciting episode. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com.
Thanks for listening.